Grab your Bibles. Let's stand for the reading of our scripture for the sermon. And you will find it in Genesis chapter 2 at verse 15. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So we're returning to the book of Genesis and our consideration of the creation ordinances. And by now you should know what a creation ordinance is, but if not, I'll remind you again, those original commands that God gave to man when he was in that estate of integrity before the fall without sin. And these commands were the marching orders that God gave to man prior to the entrance of sin coming into the world. That fall and that sin did not uh, negate these commands. They rather stay in effect, being creation ordinances. And yet, um, in the command we're considering today, the fall made the, the command much more difficult to obey. And so those commands, those creation ordinances, delineate how man, all men, believers and unbelievers, are to live. We, we've considered four commands thus far. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Subdue the earth. And rule over the fish, the birds, and the living creatures. And so now we turn to consider work. Work which will naturally lead into the next creation ordinance, Sabbath. There's a, there's a, a pattern here that the Lord uh, gives to us. Um, it's good to talk about work today because it's, it's been very strange to me how through the past three years, it's been difficult to get men particularly, but to get people to work. Right? We, you know, the perplexing thing during the COVID shutdowns and all those times was that, you know, once things eased, no one really wanted to get back to work, you know? And maybe it's because, maybe it's because of handouts, maybe it's other things, maybe it's um, the sin of laziness. And, um, but it's perplexing. So we've all, as a culture, been talking about work. But here we, um, we find out what God intends for our work. And so the first thing to note is this. Work was God's will for man prior to the fall. We just have to state that. Work was man's will, was God's will for man prior to the fall. Adam received this order to cultivate and keep the garden when there was no sin in the world. Work is not this sort of post-fall necessity. It's a pre-fall necessity. We're in the habit of complaining about work, right? We're in the habit of complaining about work, thinking that work 
is somehow a distraction from the, uh, the real life or the satisfied life or, you know, the, even the religious life. That work somehow is this, this necessary evil that we have to get through, but it really is a distraction from real life. We assume that Adam, while he was working in the Garden of Eden, felt the same way as we do when we fix the radiator in our car only to have the starter fail the next day. But the cars that Adam worked on, they, no, I'm just kidding. <clears throat> the radiators never failed though. Um, but that's not the case, right? To cultivate and keep the garden was a delight, an absolute delight to Adam. God ordered Adam to give himself to developing the earth. Adam was not just to, you know, um, get on his, his knees and worship God with his voice and mind and will. But he was rather to worship God by working, by engaging his muscles and, and using his time in bringing, yes, this beautiful Garden of Eden from point A to point B. There was some development that could take place in that beautiful garden. Adding irrigation for crops, hewing down trees for shelter, right? Harvesting crops to eat. Work was the way of life God gave to Adam so that he might glorify God who had also worked and works even now, right? God worked and works now. Genesis 2, verse 1, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. By, by the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. So God worked. God did this glorious work of, of casting the uh, the distant galaxies into, into space, right, with a word. Dorothy Sayers, I'll remind you of this, I shared this previously, but Dorothy Sayers, who, who said, had a lot of things to say about work, said this, man made in God's image should make things as God makes them for the sake of doing well a thing that is well worth doing. God made things and it was work. We make things and it's work. It's well worth doing. Work is man's way of imaging God and, yes, worshiping God. We do not sit in a hut aligning our chakras and practicing yoga, right? We do not sit in the darkness. We do not pull ourselves away from work so that we can truly begin to live, right? We are not to be inactive and idle either. Um, giving oneself to work is truly living because working is what Adam was given to do before there was sin in the world. Calvin says the earth was given to man with this condition that he should occupy himself in its cultivation. Work is a creation ordinance. All men everywhere are called to work. All right, so that's the first premise. Secondly, for Adam, work was an unencumbered delight. It was wonderful. 
right? He did not grow weary. He did not moan about waking up at 5 a.m. He did not grumble and complain. He did not wish he were fishing when he was digging a trench, right? It was only after the fall that work became toilsome and dangerous and frustrating. All by God's doing. All by God's curse. The man's work was cursed even as the woman's childbearing was cursed. Curses appropriate to each of the sexes in their specific God-ordained work. Right In Genesis 3, we learn that God intentionally cursed the ground as a punishment for Adam's sin. Right, And the ground would, would then become extremely difficult to cultivate. This is at verse 17, right? then um, verse 17 of chapter 3. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. And so the ground, the ground of the earth was once delightful, yielding, easy, right? But then as part of God's punishment for Adam's sin, the ground became and remains to this day Toilsome, frustrating, hard, unyielding, filled with thorns and thistles, and which are every farmer's enemy, right? Work was once delightful, but from Adam's sin until Christ's return, it's cursed. Work will continue to be a reminder, in fact, of Adam's rebellion. The hardness of work in and of itself should remind you of Adam's sin and Adam's rebellion, right? Your own sin might often remind you of Adam's sin and rebellion, but the difficulty of work even. Calvin says the Lord determined that his anger should be like a deluge, overflow all parts of the earth, that wherever man might look, the atrocity of his sin should meet his eyes, right? The universal difficulty of work is a testimony to Adam's sin worldwide, Everywhere, right? Everywhere his eyes look, he sees the atrocity of his sin. In other words, our work reminds us that we are cursed sinners, sons of Adam. Before the fall, work reminded Adam only and always of God's abundant blessings and kindness Right Now, though, work and its frustration reminds us of our father Adam's disobedience, the punishment of God placed upon him for that disobedience, as well as our own sin and God's punishment upon us. Instead of being a refreshing delight, right, um, Adam's work would now fatigue him and frustrate him and make him angry and throw the wrench at the engine. Right? Make him feel like, like one thing's fixed and another thing breaks. And you plant the seeds and they're overwhelmed by weeds. And what are we going to do? <laughs> How are we going to... We're making no progress. 
But nevertheless, the creation ordinance stands. The creation ordinance stands. Because work is cursed does not mean that man can forsake work. Man is to work whether the conditions are favorable or unfavorable, right? The cursedness of the ground is not a reason to disobey God's command to cultivate and keep the garden. The hard, toilsome work has to go on. It must go on. Third, even even the cursed difficulty and grueling nature of work, God's children are to engage in work as a means of glorifying God. Your work is a means of glorifying God. We do not work to retire, okay? Though we may at some point retire, right? But that's not why we work. We don't work to retire. We do not work so as to have ample income to spend on our entertainment, though we may use some of the income that we gain on our entertainment, right? We do not work so that we can boast in our intelligence, our creativity, our productivity, right? We, do not, we, we, we don't work so, um, so that we can lift ourselves into favor with God and raise ourselves up into heaven and join with, you know, the, the builders of the Tower of Babel. No, we work so as to glorify God. God's glory is to be in mind when we check in for a shift at Chick-fil-A. God's glory. It seems weird to say God's glory and Chick-fil-A in the same sentence. But when you check in for that work, that's what should be in mind. God's glory should be in mind when you develop a marketing proposal for a nonprofit, when you write a sermon, when you lay tile, when you invest other people's money, right? When you fix a network error, when you drive a truck, when you sharpen scissors, when you lecture at a university, when you're shoveling cow manure, when whatever, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, add your job to the list, you should have, this is my means of glorifying God. God's glory is to be the motivation, not money, though the worker is worthy of his wages and ought to be paid, not our own glory, not our comfort, not our retirement, not our portfolio. God's people, redeemed from the curse of sin, are to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. And our work will be or ought to be one of the major portions of our lives. And it being a major portion of our lives, that time must not be wasted in doing work for our own glory rather than for the glory of God. Just think of the amount of time you spend working, all of you. Think of the amount of work you do. If that's not time for you to glorify God, well, then your balance of time left to glorify God is almost nothing. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Colossians 3.17. 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, you may be asking, um, as I was asking when I was thinking about this, you may be asking, how do I bread chicken to the glory of God? 
It's a legitimate question, isn't it, Zeke? Right? How do I bread chicken to the glory of God? This is where the rubber meets the road, right? I mean, all of our jobs have menial aspects, difficult, hard, menial aspects, right? How do we bread chicken to the glory of God? Well, you can do it well or you can do it poorly. You can poorly bread a piece of chicken. You can do an excellent job. And which one would be to the glory of God? The excellently breaded piece of chicken. I'm going to say piece of chicken and Chick-fil-A as many times as I can. But that's not all. It's not just excellence, right? It's not just excellence. You can do it with a heart that complains through the entire shift. Or you can do it with a heart that gives thanks through the entire shift. Eight hours of slinging chicken and you're sitting there grumbling and complaining, looking at the clock and it's like, I can't stand this place. I can't stand the people I work with. Why did that numbskull just do that? And why, why can't everybody do this job like I want them to do it because I'm doing it perfectly? And you, that's your life. That's like how you are when you're doing labor. You know? I'm glad, God, you didn't make me like that man who can't sling a chicken. On the other hand, you can be thankful. You can be thankful that whole shift saying, you know, I, I get a paycheck at the end of this and I just made I just made somebody happy out there that is just loving a Chick-fil-A sandwich with the Chick-fil-A sauce that you have to put on it, right? Somebody out there is, is praising God and praying before they eat a meal and I made that meal for them. You see the difference in the mindset? Um, which one of those ways do you think glorifies God? Now, when you go home for the day after a shift or after work, you can contemplate how much you hated the day or you can ask God to give you a delight in having served other people for that day. You can go home and download and decompress, you know, how we always say that. Honey, I just need time. It was an awful day and I hate my job and I've got to decompress and I've got to down. Or you can go home and you can say, man, God gave me some difficulties and I see that he brought me through this difficulty this way and this one that way and I'm just so thankful because it could have been a much worse day, right? And anyway, there's a paycheck coming on Friday. <laughs> Praise God. Um, you, could, you could be strength and a help to those who are failing at their jobs rather than despising and mocking them for their deficiencies. You know, the weak, the, the, um, the, the ones who just can't seem to do their job well. You can come alongside them and you can, you can teach them and train them and help them to do excellently, Right? Or you can just despise them and mock them and, and get around the water cooler and, and have something juicy to tell all of your employees or, you know, coworkers who don't care if you gossip or not. You could work hard all the time or you could work hard only when the boss is looking. How many of, how many of us are guilty of that one, Right? Oh, the boss is looking. Kick it into second gear. You could be patient and apologetic with customers that go apoplectic because they forgot the, the Chick-fil-A sauce, right? 
Or you could tell them off. You could tell them off. Which is the temptation we would all face working at a fast food joint. Right? You could ease the burden of the responsibility your bosses carry or add to that burden. Right? It does not take long to figure out that there's an attitude of the heart. There's a way to relate to others you work with. There's a way to give your strength to the work. There's a way to love your neighbor or your client or whoever you're serving. That, and, and all of that adds up to doing work to the glory of God. Right? Doing work to the glory of God. And we ought to consider that. In the end, what it means to glorify God in your work is this. You serve others as if you are serving Christ himself. That's what it means. Every person you serve is an opportunity for you to love your Lord. Right? Slaves. And let's, let's uh, make the modern translation of that in Ephesians 6.5 to employees. Right? Or application, I would say. It's not a good translation. It's a good application. Employees, be obedient to those who are your masters according to flesh with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men. As to the Lord. And not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And so you write a lecture as if you're writing it for Jesus Christ. Right? You sling chicken as if you're slinging it for Jesus Christ. Right? You manage people's estates as if you're managing it for Jesus Christ. You, you write papers as if you're writing them for Christ. You do root canals as if you're doing them for Christ. Right? And that ought to influence your heart attitude while you're doing it. The diligence and seriousness with which you take the job, the excellence of the work that you do. Right? I think you get the idea. That's how we do all things as unto the Lord. Fourth, <clears throat> some respond to the difficulty of work by refusing to work. Some do. That is a disgrace. Luther said that God gives the wool, but not without the labor. If it is on the sheep, it makes no garment. <laughs> right? Right? Labor is necessary for each of us. It is the calling of God to all. But those who refuse to work, either because of the difficulty of the work or the drudgery of the work or their own laziness, are rebuked in Scripture in quite striking ways. Right? Those who will not work are said to be like infidels, unbelievers, those who won't work. Now, it doesn't say they're like infidels. It actually says they're worse than infidels. They're worse than unbelievers is what it actually says. That's pretty striking, isn't it? Those who refuse to work. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. 1 Timothy 5.8. 
We all have responsibility to pay for this or that, to help this or that person under our care, to lay up this or that for the future. And when we refuse to work, we are worse than unbelievers. We look on our life and refuse to obey this creation ordinance of God. And so, yes, those who refuse to work and provide for those in their care, to provide for himself or his own household, are, in a sense, rejecting God because you're rejecting his commands. Not only will they not obey God, but they will not give themselves to a vocation that is a means to glorifying God. They are worse than an unbeliever. In other words, even unbelievers take up their responsibility to provide for their own. So much So how much worse those who have a knowledge of God who refuse to work? That's what he's saying there. Now, I must say here that those men who are married or who are married and have children who refuse to work hard and then it becomes necessary for their wives to work to put food on the table through the month, You are being lazy and are on the verge of breaking this command. Okay? It is one thing for your wife to work to have extra income and to spend on buying the kids gifts for their birthdays. And it's quite another thing for the wife to share the breadwinning duties with her husband. Okay? Men, it is your responsibility to provide for your wife and children. Yes, hardships and circumstances may make it so that your wife has to work. I get it. And she may choose to work outside the home if she does not have the responsibility of serving her husband and children in the home. Um, But if she does have the heavy responsibility of caring for little ones or big ones who are still at home, and the responsibility of being the ruler of her home, and you require her on top of that to work outside the home because you are unwilling to work yourself or don't make enough to make ends meet, well then, you, brother, are in sin. And you ought to repent. It needs to be said. This needs to be said today, okay? It It just simply does. We've gone so far from this. Our whole paradigm for work today is two income, no kids, right? That's our whole paradigm. And would that we got back to the idea of a family wage, right, where the man could work a job and provide for his family. And I know it's difficult because no one will pay a family wage, but that means maybe you have to work two jobs. You have to work when you get home from work. Our wives ought to be working at home while we brothers work as much as we need in order to provide for them and the children. Remember back in Genesis 3, I already alluded to this. Adam's work was affected by God's curse after the fall. How about the woman? Eve's childbearing was affected by the curse. And as I already said, those curses correspond to the very structure of the sexes. The man is to go out into the world, to the garden, right, to cultivate and keep it and to provide for those under his care. The woman is to be a worker at home. That's scripture. I'm not saying that myself. Right? That's Titus. 
The woman is to be a worker at home, bearing children, fulfilling that purpose of marriage. It is not as if this means the woman doesn't work. (laughs) Oh my! It means an incredible amount of work if she is willing to fulfill God's calling. Right? I'm convinced that most feminists want to work for some corporation somewhere because they fear the intensity of the work of loving a husband, raising children, and keeping home. (laughs) Come on, laugh! (laughs) I mean... (laughs) Like Chesterton said, right? How can it be a large career to tell other people's children about the rule of three and a small career to tell one's own children about the universe? How can it be broad to be the same thing to everyone and narrow to be everything to someone? No, a woman's function is laborious, but because it is gigantic, not because it is minute. I will pity Mrs. Jones for the hugeness of her task. I will never pity her for its smallness. Can we not be embarrassed by the distinction we make between the work of a man and the work of a woman? Don't let the world embarrass us on this. It's too important. It's too important to God because he inscripturated the truth of it for us. Man and woman are different. They are made different to suit them for different vocations. The man's muscles are strong and his stamina is great. The woman's hips are broad and her breasts make milk. Adam was called to cultivate and keep the garden. Eve was named because she was the mother of all the living. You tell me which of those callings is more important. (laughs) Oh, man. Without either of them, civilization comes to a crashing halt, right? And God's creation ordinances are neglected by rebellious men and women. But I'll move on. Fifth. If you refuse to work as God has called you to work, what will become of you? Well, the book of Proverbs provides the answer as it outlines for us the fate of the sluggard. The sluggard. Proverbs 13.4, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing. But the soul of the diligent is obese, is made fat. Proverbs 20, verse 4, the sluggard does not plow after the autumn, so he begs during the harvest and has nothing. Proverbs 21, 25, the desire of the sluggard puts him to death, for his hands refuse to work. All day long he is craving, while the righteous gives and does not hold back. Proverbs 24, 30, I pass by the field of the sluggard and by the vineyard of the man lacking sense, and behold... It was completely overgrown with thistles. Its surface was covered with nettles and its stone wall was broken down. When I saw it, I reflected upon it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And your poverty will come as a robber and your want like an armed man. Proverbs 26, 13, the sluggard says, There's a lion in the road. A lion in the open square. As the door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. 
The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He is weary of bringing it to his mouth again. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can give a discreet answer. So let me summarize those proverbs. Let me summarize those statements about the sluggard. The sluggard, the man who refuses to work, will have nothing, will resort to begging, will be impoverished, will have a thousand reasons for why he's being inactive, and will eventually die as a result of his refusal to work. He will die. Most agonizingly, though, think of this. Most agonizingly, what will the sluggard still have? The sluggard will have nothing, but he will have one thing. He will still have his cravings. He will still have his desires. Right? He will still want and want and want. He will want steak and he will have none. He will want fields and land and a house and a wife and will have none. He will want M&M's and will have so little motivation that after he decides to bury his hand in the bowl, he's like, mm, not worth it. Not worth to even bring back to my mouth. And then he'll find out that M&M's melt in your hands. And most sadly, because work is a means of glorifying God, the sluggard will have none of that. He will have none of the glorifying of God. Six, the sluggard refuses to work any day But God has given us a rhythm of work and rest. It is important in light of the ever-shortening work week that we remember that God has commanded us to work six days and rest one day. Okay, God worked for how many days? He worked for six days and then he rested for how many days? One. God worked for six days and rested on the seventh, giving us a pattern for our work and rest. He did not say work five days and rest two. He did not say, like the French, work four days and rest three. God said, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant. We'll come to that next time. Or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. We do not like the command to work six because we do not see work as the blessing that it is. Right? If you grumble and complain about it and you see work as a terrible thing, then the, the command to work six is really quite awful. We let the curse God put on the work blind us to the glory of the work, which is this. Work is a means of glorifying God. There, I said it again. Which is to say, work is one of the major means we have of loving God and loving our neighbor. Our love for God works out not simply through our emotions, but it works out through our actions, our work. Whether that work is hammering nails, right? It's changing diapers, building houses, or putting a meal on the table. And let's not forget that one of the blessings of work is this. Even though it is frustrating, it still yields God's blessing. It still yields magnificently, doesn't it? 
Imagine the yield of the ground before the fall. It would have been just unimaginable for us. But just think about how much wheat we get out of the ground in the United States. It still yields, doesn't it? And that's God's mercy to us, even though it's cursed and it's hard work. The ground still yields its fruit. Psalm 128, How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. When you shall eat of the labor of your hands, you will be happy and it will be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house, your children like olive plants around your table. Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. What a glorious picture painted in that first half of that psalm, right? The man fears the Lord, walking in his ways. Because of that fear, he works to honor and glorify him. And his labor yields food, it yields happiness, it yields a fruitful wife in his house, and it yields a table filled with children. Woo! So may our work produce such glorious blessings, right? And may our work be an offering of praise and love to our God, our working God, right? Who worked to create us and to redeem us from our sins. Amen? Let us pray. Oh, Father, we, we pray that you would help us to approach our work in the coming week in a different way, in a better way, in a humble way, and that we would seek to do our work as unto you, to your glory, and that it would be fruitful by your blessing. Forgive us for the way we grumble and complain and give vent to our, our disgust at the, the thorns and thistles. But Father, I pray that you would change the attitudes of our hearts and we would delight in glorifying you in this way. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.